This is uh, one of those mornings where, oh, by the way, how's everybody doing? Are we doing okay? <laughs> Good to see everybody. Um, one, of the, one of these mornings today is uh, where we're just not going to be that seeker-friendly of a church. Um, it's it's going to be a little bit more of the locker room. Um, that doesn't mean that our arms aren't always open uh, to anyone, to everyone, at all times, uh, from the most humble posture. Uh, but there are times just when we as God's people, because that's what the church is, it's a gathering of God's people, it's the going out of God's people, um, just need to hear um, the words of God, being, being kind of in the locker room as we talk about it. So. We've been in this series on discipleship practices. Uh, some of you might call uh, discipleship practices spiritual disciplines. Um, what we're lo- really looking at is just more than something to do or to implement in our lives, uh, but, but we're really talking about how we change, like how we become like Christ. And what I've noticed, and I even find this true in my own heart, is that many Christians today have given up on changing. Uh, We're just as selfish today as we were 10 years ago. We're just as gossipy and angry. We're just as joyless, proud. We're just as addicted, worldly, self-important, anxious, short-tempered, impatient as we were years ago. In one sense, I guess you could say, you know, the heart is what it is. I have both my father-in-law in here right now, and I think my son Bennett is, is either here on, on, on his way, uh, but I remember uh, years ago when Bennett was maybe like 10 years old, and uh, my father-in-law uh, said, Bennett, because he's a, he's a diehard Buckeye, I will give you $150 if you become a Buckeye. And I'm just looking at that 10-year-old heart and the tension he's going through, um, wanting the $150, but at the end of the day, the heart is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, woo. Um, and, and, and because of this, here's what happens oftentimes to us as Christians. Um, we just then resort to just playing the part, performing it putting a good face on our lives, dressing our lives up with religion. But this is not what God has in mind. God literally, he wants to remake us. He wants to heal us. He wants to change and transform us from the inside out where we are literally being morphed into little Christs. And how does this happen? How do we change? How do we become like Christ? Well, Jesus came to this world uh, to show us the path and how we are to walk that path. And then he says to us, come follow me. And, and it's the call of Jesus for us to become disciples, which is to actually imitate his life, a life that is centered upon this passionate pursuit of God through, through the things that we've been talking about this summer, things like prayer and worship, meditating on scripture, seasons of fasting, Sabbath, all of these things. And so if we're going to die to ourselves and have Christ morphed in us 
in a way in which his salvation is getting worked in and worked out of every aspect of our lives. The practice we're going to look at today, I think, is incredibly important. Um, It's the practice of repentance. And repentance is one of those things that I think for many Christians is, is oftentimes overlooked. I think it's overlooked because it's oftentimes misunderstood by Christians and, and therefore it's hardly practiced. But in Jesus' day, you, you couldn't enter a synagogue without first repenting. This is why every synagogue that they've uncovered that dates back to the time of Jesus, uh, you, you'll find a pool somewhere nearby, um, a, a, a place to wash where uh, before entering a, the synagogue, this is also before entering the temple as well, there's all kinds of pools, maybe hundreds of them uh, that they've uncovered before the temple steps because uh, you, you don't go into God's house without repenting. And repenting to them was uh, connected to almost a sacrament um, of, of washing. And so uh, before you entered synagogue or God's house, you would just, you would enter the water and you'd wash wash your hands, you watch your face and your mouth and your eyes and your head and your, and your mind because you were thinking about all the ways in which uh, you drifted from God and through your thoughts and, and, and through your heart and through your mouth, the things that your eyes looked at or you washed your feet because of the places that you had gone. And this really started to change my idea and paradigm of repentance, which I thought in some ways was, was such a horrible thing. And now all of a sudden I started to see what, what, what a beautiful thing repentance is that when we get off the path, which is gonna happen to all of us, this path that Christ showed us to walk and we're not walking like him. And you know what? I can drift a long way sometimes. We have this wonderful thing of repentance, of of returning to the path. That's what repentance means. Uh, It's it's coming home to God. In in Hebrew, the word for repentance is teshuvah. Uh, Shuvah is the shorter form of that. It means to turn or to return. Uh, which we translate to repent. And it's, it's everywhere in the text. And shuvah, turning, returning to God, it's, it's, it's not just a one-time th- thing in a person's life. It's not that one-time thing that an unbeliever does in becoming a believer, but it's a regular practice of God's people. This is why you have texts like this one. If my people humble themselves and pray and turn, literally that's that word shuvah, they repent of their wicked ways and seek my face. Listen to the promise of this text. God says, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Or this passage from Hosea 6. Um, Passages like this are all over the Bible um, and it's all over uh, in the prophets. It says, come, let us return. There's that word shuvah. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live 
in the presence of our almighty God. And so this promise of, of God healing and, and God restoring his people through, through repentance is it's all over the text, which is why John the Baptist, think about what his entire ministry is. He's, he's calling the whole nation of Israel to wash, to do mikvah, to repent. Or how about Jesus? I mean, every sermon Jesus preached was the good news that the kingdom of heaven, it's here. And he ended that sermon with, repent. Shuvah. And even at the end of our Bibles in Revelation 1 to 3, Jesus actually also uh, gets into uh, this letter writing to Christians and Jesus writes seven specific letters to, to seven specific churches. To five of those churches, Jesus lays out the ways in which the church has gotten off track. He says, your teaching's been compromised. You're entangled in worldly passions. You've forgotten who you are and you have forsaken your first love, which is why he ends each of these letters with saying, church, Repent, shuvah. And there will be no healing, no restoration, unless there's repentance. That's why Martin Luther, part of the whole Reformation, was, was based on his statement when he said, all of life, all of life is, is repentance. So today we're going to look at this discipleship practice from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is precious to me. There is not a psalm that I have prayed more than this psalm. In fact, it's not even close. It goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. Um, my, my, my life in God, my, my, my walk with God is, is intimately connected to this psalm. Before I uh, have you stand and read this psalm, this psalm does come with a heading. And here's what the, the heading says. For the director of music, again, these psalms were songs that God's people sang. The psalm of David, it's when the prophet Nathan came to David after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And I find this really interesting. In our English Bibles today, this is a heading. And some of us think that this heading was just put there by, by, by scholars, uh, but it wasn't because in the Hebrew Bible, that heading is actually verse one. And so verse one uh, begins with this heading, which means that the heading is part of the inspired word of God and, and while I don't want to get too bogged down in the story behind this psalm, God wants us to know it. Why this psalm is here and why it's written and, and who wrote it. And it's written by, by, by King David at a time in his life when his life got so off track and, 
This is a person who both the Old Testament and New Testament describe as a man after God's own heart. And yet he drifted so far from God. He, he drifted so far from God's path. He, his, his life was so steeped in sin. In fact, it happened in David's life when, when, when David was on top, when he was king, when his armies were expanding his kingdom, when he was living in his newly built palace, when he was on top of the world. He was probably going to church on Sundays, and yet this was all on the outside of David's life because on the inside, David had slowly forsaken his first love. And through all this success, his life was seduced by the tangible things of this world, by things like power, money, success, comfort, and status. These things will always come in and diminish one's love for God. And it's in this place where David became vulnerable, probably so vulnerable that he couldn't even see the train wreck that was coming. But it's in this place where David has an affair with Bathsheba, who is the wife of his best friend. And David then doubles down on that sin. Instead of confessing and repenting of that sin, he hides it, he covers it up, and his life becomes a complete lie, which leads David to take his friend's life. Now with any other religion, I mean, this is, this, this is a hole that, that, that's too deep to dig out of. I mean, with our world today, you, you, you're written off. You are canceled. It's game over. But not with God. God loves David way too much. God sends Nathan the prophet to David to rescue David from his misery by exposing David's sin and laying it bare. His closet becomes completely clean. And it's in this place that David writes Psalm 51. But listen, before we even look at this prayer of repentance, I, I, I want us to see the healing and the restoration that takes place in David's life because of his repentance. Because we have the gift of also having Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is actually the Psalm that, that David writes uh, after uh, he's, he's been restored, after he's, he's bared his heart, his sin laid bare, and repenting of that sin. And so listen to these words. You can remain seated for these. This is what David writes. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
In other words, what David is saying in this unrepentant state, it was a, a living hell. But then he says, but then I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. <laughs> he begins this whole Psalm the way the whole book of Psalms begins with the word blessed. Remember Psalm one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is on the Lord's Torah and on it he meditates both day and night. And remember what blessed means? Blessed means total fulfillment. It means that I'm wonderfully okay, that I'm intrinsically whole, and of course, we understand that in light of Psalm 1, of course, for someone who delights. But now David is, is, is saying in, in 30, Psalm 32, blessed, being wonderfully okay, full of joy. This idea that, that, that I'm extrinsic, intrinsically whole is for the Davids of the world. The people who have made such a mess of their lives. The screw-ups, the failures. It's for sinners who've been forgiven, sinners who have emptied their closets of secret sin, who are no longer living a lie. Sinners who've taken their sin to God through confession and have repented. David says they are the blessed ones. And so complete is the forgiveness that David in verse five can say, not only did you forgive my sin, but you forgave the guilt of my sin. And Crossroads, that's why I, I, I believe that, that so much is at stake in light of what we're looking at this morning. What's at stake is our actually healing, our restoration, our, our transformation, our joy, our wholeness. So let's go to Psalm 51. Let's stand and read this. Better yet, let's stand and pray it from our hearts. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love. Man, I feel like the character right now in uh, Crime and Punishment when Raskolnikov asks this character to pick up God's word and read it, not because he values it, but he's almost making a mockery of her. Pick it up and read it to me. Read me John 11 is what Raskolnikov asks her to read. And she can hardly read it because it's so precious to her. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that God, you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge me. 
And you know, God, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And I know what you want. You desired faithfulness. Even in the womb, you taught me wisdom in the innermost place. So God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Oh God, create in me a pure heart. God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. In fact, God, do not cast me from your presence. Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me your spirit to sustain me. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, David uh, first sets the, the, the table for, for this amazing confession. He sets the table by, by saying, God, there, there are three things that I want you to know that I know. And I think we need to know these things as well for, for repentance to be the kind that actually restores us. The first thing David uh, alludes to in verse three is, is, God, I know my sin. I know it. It's always before me. I'm not hiding it anymore. I'm not trying to justify it. I know it. And this is just so basic uh, for repentance uh, to be practiced in our life because if we, if, if we, keep, if we don't know our sin, there, there is no repentance, and I'll be the first to say that, that to see my sin as a humbling and at times a humiliating experience, it, it's, it's something that takes guts and courage to actually face, face it. But that's good for me. You show me a truly humble person and I can promise you that is a person who can see their sin. You show me a proud person, and that is a person who can't see their sin. See, actually seeing our sin and admitting our sin is, is, is actually the mark of, of spiritual maturity. I mean, a few weeks ago, we looked at the Apostle Paul and how in Romans 7, Paul speaks about the sin that still lives in, in him. And that's not prior to him coming to Christ. That's, that's Paul talking as, as a believer in fact, that whole thing culminated with Paul saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. And listen, this is not something I think Paul could really say about himself prior to coming to Christ. In fact, I think we know how Paul thought about himself prior to coming to Christ. He lays it out in Philippians 3. He says, I was the best. I was the ultimate Hebrew. As to God's Torah, I was perfect. And see, when you're in the dark, you can't see yourself. But Paul's encounter with Christ, it shattered uh, all of this. 
I mean, the, the, the light of Christ, yes, it blinded Paul, but for the first time, Paul could see. And not just see Christ, but he could see himself, which is why he can write Romans 7. It's why he can write at the end of, of his life, I, Paul, am chief of sinners. Because the more that you and I grow in Christ, the closer we are to the light of the world, the more we're going to see the cracks, the brokenness, and the sin. And it's not just those obvious things, but it's those hidden ones. Whoa, I didn't know that was there. Selfish motives, a grudge that we've been nursing, greed, entitlement, discontentment, jealousy, a need to control, a need to be liked or praised. I mean, that list goes on and on in my life. And see, this is why David in verse four refers to his sin as, as evil in your sight, O oh God. Because Knowing my sin is seeing my sin the way God sees my sin. And so often I'm, I'm tempted to make light of my sin or, or, or to see my sin maybe the way my friends would see my sin or, or the way that my culture would see my sin. And this is how we discern between true and false guilt. There's some people who are going to try to ease your guilt. In fact, they're gonna make you guilty by telling you you shouldn't feel guilty. But there's, I think, still more people who try to make you feel guilt over things that you and I shouldn't be feeling guilty about. That is why for us to be able to say, I know my sin like David, and to come face to face with it, I need God in my life. I, I, I need his word. I need his Holy Spirit. I mean, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of sin. When's the last time you've prayed, search my heart, oh God, Try me and know me and see if there is any offensive way in me. And not only do I need all of this, the Holy Spirit, God's word, sometimes it's really helpful to have Nathans in our lives too. People who love me enough to help me see what I can't see. It's all of this why David can say to God, God, I know my sin. In verse four, the second thing David says that he knows, he says, God, I know you. In fact, look at verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, as the judge of the universe are writing your verdict and you are justified when you judge. God, I know that you're the judge. I know that you're not only the judge, but that you are a good and just judge and that what I've done deserves death. David says, I know all that. 
But even more than God being this, this just judge, uh, David knows that God is the lover of his soul, which is why in verse one, he opens this whole thing up. He makes his appeal uh, to a character quality of God uh, that we have translated as unfailing love. God, according to your unfailing love. In Hebrew, this is the word hesed. Hesed might be one of the richest words in the Hebrew language. It can't even be summed up in, in a clause. Um, that's why it's translated so many different ways. But this is what hesed is. Hesed is this dying, unconditional, unmerited, loyal kind of death, loyal to the death kind of love. And that's why in the Psalms, this is David's favorite word to describe God, because God's hased means that no matter what he has done or what he has become, God, he can't, he can't give us up. He can't let us go. His love never fails, even in our worst failure. And this is why David here says, against you, you only have I sinned. It's why David is devastated. It's not so much the consequences of his sin. I mean, there's so many things that David could say here. He could say, I've sinned against my people and it's affected my kingdom. He could say, I sinned against the law and I deserve to die. He could even say, I sinned against myself and it's ruined my life. But instead he says, I sinned against you. In fact, this doubling of you you, anytime you see that in the Bible, Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it signifies this intense love. And this is why David is so devastated. It's not the consequences he's about to suffer. He knows that he has violated a love relationship that he has with the living God. I have such a great older brother. Um, so he, I bless God for him. Uh, he's so much more than I will ever be as a human being. Uh, I, I do remember, he's my older brother. We, we shared a bedroom our whole growing up and He's four years older, and one night I do remember where he might have had a little too much to drink. It was the first and only time I've ever seen him in that situation. And years later, I just asked him about it, and I said, Kurt, why did you never do that again? Like, why were you just, you know, such an example? And he didn't even flinch. He just looked at me, and he said, it's because I love Dad too much. Do you feel bad for your sin? And if you feel bad about your sin, is it because you love God or is it because you've been caught and now have to deal with the consequences? See, if the latter is the case, this is really nothing more than self-pity and self-pity is really just heaping more sin on the sin and, and, and a person will never change through self-pity. See, this is why Jesus, when he's restoring Peter, he, he gets to what, what this all is. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? 
Rod, do you love me? Yes, Lord. The third thing that David knows, not only his sin, not only who God is in the covenant relationship that he's in with this God, but he also knows. He says, God, I, I know what I should be. Look at verse six. It says, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the secret places of my heart, David is saying here, in, in the innermost places of my soul. In my private life, David is saying to God, God, I have become a complete lie. There's nothing but deceit. And see here, David is taking full responsibility for his sin. He's not making excuses. He's not blaming other people or even circumstances. He's taking full responsibility for his sin. And listen, we, we don't sin because of circumstances. We don't sin because someone made us do it. It's the desires of our heart that go uncontrolled that cause a person to sin. And our hearts will never change. We will never be healed. We will never be transformed until we take full responsibility for our sin, all of it. And now with the table set, David in verses seven to 12 is gonna pray what I think is one of the most complete prayers of confession in the Bible. And he essentially prays five things. The first thing he prays is in verse seven, look at it. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Do you hear what he's praying? God, I need you to make me clean. See, David understands that that, that sin has made him unclean, that, that it's defiled him. And I think about all the people today that feel stained or defiled or, or, or even dirty. It's not just religious people that feel this, but it's irreligious people. It's, it's why so many people live their lives to hide. And I think this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve who hid and covered themselves after they sinned. And people have been hiding and covering themselves ever since. But David gets to a point here now where he's done with hiding. And that's why he prays, God, would you cleanse? Would you purify me. God, I need you to wash me. In fact, hyssop is, is the toilet paper of the ancient world. And in some ways, he's like, God, all the, all, I see all the crap. Would you please just wash me? The second thing that David prays, verse nine, look at it. Hide your face from my sins and blot all, all my iniquity. And here's what David is, is, is longing for. And I think all of us have been in this, in this place, uh, irrespective of who we are or, or, or what we've done, 
we, we think how nice it would be if someone could just hit the reset button on our lives. And that's what David is praying here. God, can you give me a new start? Can you give me a whole new beginning? And who today even offers a clean slate? I mean, people always remember. They always hold our sin against us, but not with God. That's why David can pray what he prays in Psalm 32, the psalm he prays after this prayer. He says, you no longer count my sin against me. <laughs> and I say to myself, well, how, how can David pray that? How can, how can he know that? Well, it's because of Psalm 103 where God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgression from you. It's gone. <laughs> the sin, the mistake, the season of life. As far as the east is from the west, God says, it's no more. I mean, this is mind boggling to me. This is why I don't know why we're not running to God all the time and repenting. The third thing David prays, verse 10. Here David says, God created me a clean heart. David of all people understood that God is concerned about one thing, our hearts, our hearts. We've been looking at this in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter seven, Jesus says all sin, it originates in the human heart. And David prays something here that, 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 that is, is stunning to me uh, because he's not saying, God, my heart is broken. Would you repair it? Would you fix it? He's saying, my heart, God, it's dead. It's so messed up. I need you to do something more than just taking something that's broken and fixing it. I need you to do open heart surgery on me. I need you to literally create a new heart in me. And that is a prayer. That God could do that. Well, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says to the prophet, he says, the day is coming, Israel. I know you stained yourself. I know how unclean you are, but I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will remove your heart of stone and I will put within you a heart of flesh. When's the last time you've prayed that? Fourth thing David prays. Verse 11, let your eyes fall on it. David says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. The one thing that we know about David when he is walking with God is that God is everything to him, that God's presence is everything to him. I mean, think about all the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is the light 
my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the strength of my life. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. As deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. And here's what David recognizes is that God is, is, is no longer in his life. And he's praying, please don't leave me, God. Stay with me. And the fifth thing David prays, which is in both verse eight and 12. Let me hear joy and gladness The bones that you have crushed, let them rejoice. And then verse 12, rejoice to me, the joy of your salvation. David has lost his joy. His life is miserable. And he knows the joy that he once had. Joy that was found in God. I mean, he knew this joy intimately. In Psalm 4, verse 7, he says, You have filled my heart with greater joy than when grain and new wine abound, O God. (laughs) And David is recognizing that that too is so missing from his life. And he's he's praying to God, God, would you restore that? Now, why did he lose it? Well, we could say he, he lost his joy because of his sin, and, and, and that certainly is true. It, it, it'll happen in our lives. Uh, but I'm also gonna contend it can happen the other way around, that David actually fell in sin because he lost the joy of the Lord. When God is not our ultimate joy, we will seek joy in other places, whether it's in sport or pleasure or our careers or making money or buying things or going to whatever to to find it. The human heart can't live without joy because we've been created to enjoy God. David said, I lost that joy. And I need that joy, restore that joy. And God does when we repent. And today you can finish the rest of this psalm because if you keep reading, what you're gonna see in David is a man who's restored, a man who has his joy back, his confidence back, his leadership is back, he gets his life back because this is what God does when we repent. I know today, it's like, oh man, (laughs) wow, this was a lot. Like, are you kidding me? Like, why did I come to church today to hear about sin? Because for so many of us, um, sin is such a frightening, scary thing to talk about. And I think I know why it is. It's because sin is failure. And failure in our world means rejection. I mean, our world labels and rejects failures. Our culture looks down on failure. Churches oftentimes judge and shame failure. Parents sometimes punish failure. Friends at times will walk away from failures. But all of this betrays the heart of God. 
Because our world is that way, because our culture is that way, because your parents might be that way, or the church you might have gone to your whole life might be that way, God isn't that way. I mean, think about Jesus' whole parable, the prodigal. This is really a parable about God, who God is. Jesus wants us to know that God is first and foremost father. And he's not just any kind of father, but a specific kind of father. A father that when we sin, when we fail, when our life gets off track, we could become the worst human being possible. If we repent and return to God with a broken and a contrite heart, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God, like the father in the parable, he will run to us. He'll run. And I know the Middle Eastern culture. In the Middle Eastern culture, you have to gird up your loins and bare your legs to run. And, and, and that is a dishonoring and a shameful thing for an older man to do. But this father, when he sees his son returning, his heart explodes with such joy and love. He can't help but shame himself. He runs. And he runs to us. And he throws his arms around us. He embraces us. He restores us to his family as beloved sons and daughters. And Jesus also adds a little PS to this. He says, and all of heaven will applaud when one sinner repents. And David in Psalm 32, verse seven, we didn't get this far in that Psalm, the Psalm that he writes after he repents, he says, you, O God, are my hiding place and you surround me with songs of deliverance. Think about this. David goes from hiding from God to now hiding in God. And that God has become the safest place in the world for David to be. And this is why Jesus is speaking all the time about repentance because when we hide ourselves uh, in God, we no longer have to cover ourselves. We no longer have to hide. We no longer have to have closets full of all this junk. We are free. And this is why this discipleship of repentance, I think, is one of the greatest joys and privileges that we have as humans. It is simply the experience of returning to a God who is our Father who made us, who loves us. And every time we repent, we get to experience that. And we get to have our hearts melted by that and changed by that. Are you blessed today? 
in the Psalm 32 sense of that word? Are you full of joy? Do you know that you're wonderfully okay? Do you feel whole from the inside out? What would happen? I think about this sometimes. If Christ followers today actually got serious about sin, if we stop judging people around us, we stop judging our culture, we stop judging our world, and instead we said, God, search our hearts, try us and know us, find if there's any offensive way in us. And what if we had the courage to acknowledge our sin, to come clean of our sin, to confess our sin, to repent of our sin. I'll tell you, can you see that father in Jesus' story running? He would be running to us. And there'd be a new explosion of the life of God and the character of God and the healing of God and the revival of God and the people of God. Crossroads, let's repent. God, thank you. Just thinking of Paul, who said it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Maybe this morning, God, there's repentance in this place. And maybe we leave this place, God, and find a quiet place with you and find the time to get on our knees and get cut to the heart. Allow your Holy Spirit to come in and to convict. And maybe we could lead a life that Martin Luther talked about where all of our life is repentance. And it's not because we're so good, it's because you're so good. It's not because we have to, it's because we get to. If my people, says God, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, repent and seek my face. I will heal their land.